Welcome listeners to Sleep, Eat, Perform and Repeat. This is a podcast on high performance. It will be presented by myself, David Clancy, and my two co-hosts, Connor Gavin and Kieran Dunn. What we're striving to achieve here is figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why are they successful. Rate and review, share with your friends, but most importantly, enjoy. Welcome everyone to episode number 57 of Sleep Eat, Perform, Repeat. Today we spoke to my friend and colleague, Johnny Owens. We hear about the situation in the USA and in particular Texas during the COVID-19 pandemic. Johnny shares his story about blood flow restriction or BFR training, what it is, how is it used and why it can help and where the future possibilities lie. This is a really fascinating interview for those of you interested in sports medicine orthopedics, healthcare, research, the military, and so many other facets. Johnny, see you again in San Antonio soon, brother. Stay safe, everyone, at home, and wash your hands. And thanks for tuning in. Hi, welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. We're joined on the line by Johnny Owens, all the way from Texas. I'll get David to introduce you to Johnny. So we're very grateful to have Johnny on the line. Um, Johnny, Obviously works in the hospital for the Intrepid San Antonio. I've been there myself. The man behind Owens Recovery Science and kind of blood flow restriction, he is the guy that worked through that for so long. Really looking forward to hearing all about high performance and also what life is like in the US going through this, I suppose, this global pandemic. So a lot to get through today. Really looking forward to it. Johnny, how's life? It's good, David. Thanks for having me on. And, and Karan, um Man, life, you know, everything changed in, a, in about a month, it feels like. Um, but, but you know, trying to keep a smile on everyone's face, my family's face, my face, and keep a business going, keep research going. Um, so, yeah, it's crazy. How are you guys? Yeah, we're, we're coping. It's funny what, what we were only just talking about off air there was there's a lot of people that obviously with the routine been changed so much, drastic change of routine with lockdown here that people kind of don't know really what they're doing or they're not doing what they were doing. And what we're trying to do, I suppose, is, is keep consistency as best we can and keep trying to do what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but it, it, it's hard because, you know, we're a bit limited, but at least that's what the two of us are trying to do here. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all trying to figure out what the new normal is and um, how, how do we progress? How do you pivot? Um, <laughs> so every, everything's changing constantly. Yeah. So what, what's, what's the kind of climate like there in, in Texas at the moment with this whole, with the whole COVID thing at the moment? What's it like there? Man, as you can imagine, you know, there are a lot of questions, a lot of freaked out or a lot of like, yeah, this is no big deal. It's overblown. Um, um, I'm not sure how much you guys followed over there. I, I think you're going through some of the same political things we are, but our, our country was pretty split already um, as far as, you know, the political lines. And, and so it, it's really interesting. I have friends that kind of straddle both sides, conservative and liberal, and just seeing the difference in the way that people are, are kind of going at it. Because Texas is a pretty conservative state, as you know, David, you, you, you're down here all the time. Um, but then San Antonio and Austin, which, you know, is my area is, is much more liberal. And so we're taking it a lot more serious, went on lockdown. We're in our second week now. 
but the entire state of Texas has not is not on lockdown. So different areas are kind of responding differently. And that's quite surreal. Like that's extremely different to to Ireland and Europe because you know Ireland we're all on lockdown. That's what the prime minister, the Taoiseach, would have said. But like that's amazing. And the fact that there's pockets of a state that are on lockdown and others that that aren't, and that's just one state. Yeah, yeah, and you know. The, the states that aren't on lockdown are, are the more conservative states, um, Republican, uh, yeah. Florida, Louisiana, Texas. And, you know, there's there's people, you know, going to church, you know, with the elderly and in large groups, which is just kind of blowing our mind right now. You know, we, we've self-quarantined and, you know, don't even get to see grandma or anything right now just because, you know, we, we don't want to pass this on to somebody. So it's a little bit mind, you know, mind blowing and. One day to the next, you know, things seem to, you know, okay, we're, we're going to get a little bit more serious about this and then something will happen. And it seems like, oh, no, we're going to open our country back up. You know, this whole like we we're going to be ready to open by Easter was which is kind of unbelievable to hear when the, the rates are just skyrocketing, especially what we're seeing in New York right now. Um, I have friends there and it's just it's amazing what's going on in New York. Yeah, with the, with the ship that pulled in yesterday, I have a very good friend who lives um, in New Jersey, and he was just saying it's it's such a surreal sensation as to what's going on through the boroughs there at the moment. Yeah, if USS Mercy or the USS Comfort, those are our giant, you know, hospital, you know, battle basically battleships retrofitted into being hospitals. When one of those pulls into your port, <laughs> shits hit the fan. <laughs> I don't know if I can cuss. Sorry, guys. I might drop. No, you can. It's cool. It's cool. We're Irish. We're used to that. So yeah, it's you know, but those are usually reserved for you know, outside Haiti or this big natural disaster, or we're in war. And, and to see that just kind of parked off the port in New York is is crazy. Or in L.A. Um, so we just talked to some friends Friday out in L.A. and some of them are, are pretty connected politically, and they're very nervous of, of what's coming in California right now. What's what's the biggest thing you're taking from it, kind of personally, even even learning that maybe maybe is 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 changed something, or maybe it's just something that you do anyway, and it's just oh, this is actually more important now. Yeah, well, you know, like everything, now all of a sudden, you know, don't sweat the small stuff anymore. Um, little things that, that I was maybe worried about. You know, there was a little problem we were having with one study, you know, and it was an enrollment issue and. Now, like all the studies are, are basically put on hold indefinitely. So um, that, that little problem isn't even a problem anymore. It's like every study is, uh, has become a, you know, shut down. So, the, you know, I was talking to my wife this morning. It's, it's so interesting, just the, the resiliency that we have and how quickly people can adapt to the new normal. You know, and you, you hear people like during you know, World War II, especially over in Europe, you know, just, okay, yeah, cool. This is life. We're, we're going to freaking eat, you know canned tuna for every day for the next month because you know <laughs> nothing and, and you're like holy hell how do they do that stuff but i mean if you told me three weeks ago that you know i would be watching like every newscast from freaking you know the the newscasters like bedroom and living room and you know there would be hospital tents in the middle of central park and the uss comfort would be in new york and you know i would be like what kind of freaking movie that sounds scary as hell and it's like right now it's like okay yeah uh, it's what it is. And, and let's make sure my kids are doing their zoom, you know, <laughs> class session. Today, and, and the adaptability is amazing. So I, I think, you know, cherish that and then also see, you know, what you can do to, to kind of move into that new sector, whatever, whatever it means. 
like it kind of it is kind of what it is right so i've heard that as you know we kind of have to adapt to it and and overcome it yeah but but you know be, be really really smart with what we're doing i suppose after this call i'm going to go to john west tuna and buy shares in that company anyway <laughs> to stop buying cans of tuna anyway because it'd be like buying hand sanitizer here you know it's just going off the shelf for 10 euro for 10 mils <laughs> yeah you know, you get a little nervous, the herd mentality, and then, you know, everyone kind of moves into this panic and you, it's still almost impossible to find any freaking toilet paper uh, in, in San Antonio right now. Um, luckily, we'd, we'd already bought some at, at Costco. We typically buy toilet paper in bulk anyway, so that was nothing new to us. But, um, you know, there was a, a point in time when we had a hurricane hit down here and gas was becoming a shortage and, and people were literally like filling up. Um, kids swimming pools in the back of their trucks with gas because they were freaking out that, you know, we weren't going to have gas for a month. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, a, you know, there's Texas, that, that defines Texas in basically one sentence, I think. And so, <laughs> um, you know, there was this fear that like, Jesus, all, you know, all my friends are out buying guns and stuff right now. And <laughs> are, are, are we going to see the worst in people? And, and now I think we're seeing the best. And, you know, we had some nurses from San Antonio that are actually, heading up to New York right now to go kind of backfill and help out. And, you know, so it's, it's good to see the human spirit. That's cool. So, so let's, let's pivot. Let's, let's change tack for a minute. And, you know, the original intention to get Johnny Owens onto this pod was, was to learn, to learn from the man and, and share his learnings and distill that to all of you. So Johnny, do you want to just share a little bit of as to your story and kind of, you know, what you've done and, and kind of what you do, maybe not right now today. <laughs> yeah. um, but what's your, what's your, what's your current thing all about? Just so Kiran can understand and know a little bit more about you and also the listeners. Sure. Sure. So um, I'm a physical therapist. I've been a physical therapist here in the States since 98. Um, primarily was a sports medicine background, did some extra sports medicine rotations out of school um, we didn't have fellowship, sports medicine fellowships like we do now um, back then. And so um, in 2004, I, I um, started working with the Department of Defense. And that was just as the wars were really taken off, OEF and OIF. Um, I, was, I was really kind of more tasked with kind of helping with some of the sports medicine programming. San Antonio, Texas we're, we're known as Military City USA. Um, we have we have a lot of military bases here, but but the majority of our bases are medical. So we're we're kind of the medical hub for the Department of Defense, and so we have the largest um, military hospital in the world, and we have the only level one trauma center that the DoD has in the world here in San Antonio. Um, and so that's that's where I was. Um, and all of a sudden, the the wars went extremely kind of more robust than we, we, we ever expected. The surge happened and the combat casualty really became a, a massive problem. And our base wasn't prepared. You know, it's almost kind of analogous to what we're seeing with these hospitals now. We would just, you know, 10, 20 guys coming in on a manifest a weekend, um, severely injured from IEDs. And, and, you know, we're just trying to figure out, you know, we had them in the hallways and things like that doing rehab. And so... Um, I, I switched to, you know, kind of focusing just on sports medicine. I started focusing on um, the kind of big boom blast trauma. And so I became director of limb salvage rehabilitation. And I was trying to, to help the service members who decided to 
to keep their limb, which was pretty much every one of them, avoid delayed amputations. And, and so got really involved in a lot of research in that area um, with, with big trauma. You know, how can you regrow lost muscle that's been blown off in the battlefield? And you know, what's the best kind of loading to, to help with, with giant bone defects and things like that? And so we, we developed a program that basically built like a prosthetic on your leg, but you kept your leg. Um, it was more of an exoskeleton. And that was extremely successful. And we, we've published, I think, 13 papers on it, um, multi-million dollar grants to research it. And um, the DOD patented that device and sold the, li- the license of it out. But that device wouldn't work unless you had really strong thigh strength. And so we, in rehab, we always have had this problem of getting strength back after injury is, is hard enough. Getting strength back after really big injury um, like a blast trauma is extremely hard. So we started really exploring um, the application of blood flow restriction as a way to to get more of a, uh, an increase in muscle quantity and quality just to be able to make this device work um, so that we would avoid delayed amputations. Delayed amputations are not only bad, um, we think, you know, from long-term function, obviously, and the comorbidities that come along with it, but the, also, the increased cost um, that the DOD was seeing with, with this large increase of amp- amputees. And that was a very successful in that group. And then we moved into um, regenerative medicine kind of aspects of it, of, of could we use some regenerative techniques to apply these grafts and minced grafts into lost muscle tissue and use BFR as a means to, to give a really big anabolic signal to start going down some really deeper physiological pathways, like increasing muscle stem cell and increasing muscle protein synthetic response, uh, decreasing fibrosis. And so that really took off. And then, then we started looking at it in the sports medicine population last. And that's when it kind of proliferated throughout the entire DOD around that time. Um, the number one draft pick, uh, in the NFL was injured um, for the Houston Texans. I'd done a story on what we were doing with blood flow restriction in the military and the Texans called and asked if, if I could show them how to do it and help this guy. We did. He did great. I presented his results at the NFL combine. Um, and then basically my phone just blew off the hook from, from that moment on. Yeah. I know the I know the player. We're not gonna we're not gonna mention the player. <laughs> he's out. He's um, out in the media. He's talked about it, so it's fine. Um, yeah, JC, if you're listening, pal. Johnny, for for the for the for the layperson, for somebody who who doesn't know much about BFR, who hasn't done a course, hasn't read, hasn't you know researched a little bit about it, what would you say it's all about? Yeah. So you know the body. In, the, in its most basic sense for muscle, you can just say, okay, there's, there's two kind of muscle fibers or pathways and the slow twitch fibers use oxygen. Um, your body prefers to use those because it's, it's very efficient system. The body loves efficiency and you, you don't really get a reward, which means more muscle from using it. And the body likes that as well, because as you add more muscle, then you add more reason um, to increase metabolism because that muscle uh, metabolizes faster. And so if you do something that requires more force output, like lift a heavy weight or do a powerful um, thing like a plyometric or a sprint, your body will use larger motor units and it switches into this fast twitch metabolism and uses these fast twitch fibers. And so 
then you can really break it down as, okay, one, one part of the muscle system uses oxygen and uses it well. The other part of the system doesn't use oxygen, but it can, it, it can use the part that doesn't use oxygen really puts out a lot of force output. So mm-hmm. in its essence, blood flow restriction then is using a tourniquet to just decrease the oxygen um, within a limb so that no matter what you do, lifted, lifting light, walk on a treadmill, whatever, your body is forced to use those fast twitch, powerful fibers just because of a decrease in oxygen availability. And, and if you do that, then there is the potential to get good reward from that. And, and that is increasing muscle strength and increasing muscle size because you use fast twitch fibers. And that's always been this, this kind of magical unicorn we've been looking for in, in rehab is how can people that can't lift weights, they just had surgery, they're injured tap into that system because that system requires load or requires a high force output. I like that magic unicorn. (laughs) It's very interesting training method, Johnny, and it's actually growing a lot and getting a lot of interest over here in Ireland, especially. But I think it's worth mentioning and discussing how unique the devices are. And you can't just use a tourniquet that you find off the shelf that needs to be a certain pressure. Do you want to just elaborate on that a bit for the listener? Yeah. So some occlusion is probably going to give you something sometimes maybe it does sometimes maybe it doesn't um when when you're really trying to look at you know from a safety and from an efficacy standpoint um really understanding how much pressure you're restricting um starts to become important especially if we're looking at clinical populations or you know an athlete that's using it for performance um because uh, the amount of pressure it takes to make the blood stop into a limb is based on your blood pressure. It's based on how big your limb is. It's based on how much muscle versus fat you have in your limb. Um, it's based on how wide the cuff is. And, and so we have to take all those variables into account because, you know, David's got little skinny legs and he might need just a little bit of pressure. And my, wow. my you're lucky. You're lucky. It's a phone call and you're <laughs> far away there. Johnny. <laughs> hey, you're, you're tall and long, man. You know, I'm like, <laughs> All right, okay, okay. But yeah, so I would need more pressure to get to what we call LOP, limb occlusion pressure. So that the LOP is where we know, okay, for me, maybe it took 250 millimeters of mercury to make all the blood stop. And, and then the totality of blood flow restriction literature really says that um, when you're doing this with exercise, you want to allow some arterial inflow. So then we back it off. And, and I'm just going to talk about the legs. It looks like the minimum threshold, and there's some new studies that have come out and shown this, to, to really get an effect on, on a lot of these acute variables we're looking at is 60% of that arterial inflow is, is probably the minimum in the legs. Um, if you start to get below that, it looks like it's just really equal to lifting light. So if I put pressure on and I've only got 40, 50% limb occlusion in my legs, and I'm doing these light exercises and thinking I'm going to get a blood flow restriction response, I, I'm really probably not it i have too much arterial inflow and i'm I'm keeping the muscle oxygenated so 60 percent at least is the minimum it looks like and then as you go up 80 percent limb occlusion looks like it even has a bigger effect on it and so then people say well why don't you just do full 100 percent occlusion and get the biggest effect and and really because you can't get the volume in when you go at 100 percent occlusion it's just almost impossible um, to get through any sets and reps just because you have you have so much ischemia going on. So so we use systems that automatically will find that limb occlusion pressure circumferentially in the cuff 
it squeezes down until it measures that there's no flow in those deep arteries down by the bone. And then automatically it'll taper it back down to kind of the, the protocol that looks like it has the best effect. Um, and then it, it microprocessed and it maintains that pressure the entire time. So as the limb's swelling, as the limb's moving, um, the cuff will sit there and adapt and try and maintain those pressures. You know, a lot of people use like a pump up type thing. Um, the problem with those is those sphygmonometers aren't made to hold pressures. So you can pump them up and it might get up to some occlusion. But then as you start to move around, if, if you watch the sphygmonometer, the dial just drops. So you, you kind of start to reperfuse the muscle really quick and lose the effect. Um, or people, you'll see people with these thin, narrow bands on. And the problem with those is it takes a ton of pressure in a narrow band to get down and get to the full occlusion that you would need to, to know what the LOP is. And it, most people can't tolerate the band going that high. Um, and then secondly, it's dangerous because you started to occlude the nerves first, um, the superficial nerves, and, and you start to demyelinate nerves. You know, if you go to the OR suites, the surgeons aren't using thin little narrow bands. Um, they're using these wider tapered cuffs because you get occlusion with much lower pressures. Yeah. For the for the layman or someone looking to use this now, we've used words like ischemia and demyelination and, and things and swelling. What kind of feeling do you get from it? I don't want to scare off too many people from, from actually doing it. What do you think people, what should they sense when they're, they're getting a correct occlusion almost? Yeah. So, you know, obviously you're going to feel pressure in the cuff. Um, and, and, and the easiest analogy, I think, is, is everyone's had their blood pressure checked. And so that feeling when you're having the cuff go up, when you're having your blood pressure checked, is obviously a feeling you're going to have. And, and so if you're squeamish even to that, uh, this probably isn't for you. <laughs> and, and so um, you're going you're gonna to feel that pressure in the limb. And, and we have to really get there you know, pretty high because, again, we're trying to catch all the arteries throughout the limb, even the deep ones down by the bone. Um, but then as you start exercising, what you, what you really start to feel at first, and, and let me break it down. We put a position stamp paper out in, in frontiers and physiology last year, which kind of said, you know, what's the best pressures you use? What's the best set and rep schemes? That's actually open access uh, that anyone can read. And typically you do a set of 30 reps first. And really during that first set of 30, all you feel is a pressure from the cuff and and that's it because you still have plenty of oxygen perfused in the muscle and you're still able to use the slow twitch cycle, the, the one, the muscle, the slow twitch fibers that your body would always want to use for, for light weights. Then you take a 30 second rest period with the tourniquet still on and then you move in and you do three sets of 15 with 30 second rest. And that's kind of the most popular set and rep scheme. Now, when you start doing those three sets of 15, your body has to start to switch to using the, the fast twitch fiber recruitment. And, and so as you move into fast twitch metabolism, most people who exercise have felt that burning sensation when they're lifting a heavy weight or sprinting. That's a byproduct of fast twitch metabolism. And, and it's basically for every glucose molecule you, you use to make that metabolism go, you start cleaving off what we call muscle metabolites. And those are hydrogen ions and lactate. And so what you really start to feel after that first set is then a, a really a burning like muscle workout sensation in the muscles, typically um, below the cuff. 
and we keep the tourniquets on during the rest period. So even during the rest period, you're really feeling that burning and you're feeling like this is like a really hard workout. And it's kind of a screws with your mind a little bit because you're lifting like a two pound weight, but it feels like you're building up just a ton of those muscle metabolites. So that's what most people feel. And the rate of perceived exertion, especially the first time you do it, is usually really high. It stresses people out. It is hard just because they're just like, wow, this is a lot of burning I'm feeling in my limb. Yeah, and you've obviously gone into a lot of like high-performance organizations. I know you've been to the Texans and the Rockets. Um, I've seen videos of Dwight Howard mentioning the burn. Um, what's the initial reaction from players and athletes when they start to take this on? Because they would be used to lifting heavy a lot of the time, especially in sports over here. When you come in and say, we're going to lighten the load, but you're going to apply this cuff, is there a little bit of resistance or how do they adapt to it? We're primarily clinical based, although we do quite a bit now in, on the performance. And, you know, I hate this word, but recovery side um, as well. And, and so most of these athletes are... Jackie, to cut across, why do you hate that word? Just explain to me. I'm curious. Because it's, it's too encompassing. Maybe because I get asked it so much. Everyone will say, like, what do you do for recovery? Um, hey, what's, what's your, what do we need to do yeah, yeah. for recovery? And, and it's like, man, what do you mean? Um, for sleep? Could or, be anything. For somatic, you know, for decreasing muscle breakdown. Um, so, you know, I think everyone is like, I, I do recovery. And it's like, well, what do you do? Well, I do sleep. Well, well that's one component, you know, let's just stay that yeah, yeah. your person does sleep. And, and like, I know, David, you kind of, you do cover all the, all those areas. So it's appropriate. But, you know, for me, I, I can't say I'm like a recovery specialist because I, I really probably couldn't tell you like what's the best sleep hygiene. I'm, I'm, I'm basic at it. But I can tell you from a muscle physiology side what I think is best. Anyways, and I, I get off tangents, man. I, I've got a huge soapbox. So yeah. I'm always trying I, to I brought you off that tangent, Johnny. It's cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so most of the athletes are really looking for that sensation, you know, I, I know what it feels like to work out hard. And the doctor did this, you know, microfracture surgery on me. And he says, I can't do anything for eight weeks. And, and they're dying to feel, you know, that, that fast twitch kind of burn. I, I did something. So typically they're very excited when they're like, wow, those, those mad exercises I did lifting my leg up actually felt like I did something. And then even on the performance side, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the aged athlete who's, you know, the, the treads worn down on their knee and, and they just, they don't want to squat heavy anymore. And when they, you know, they're like, man, this feels like I'm squatting heavy, but it's not. And my knee feels better. Um, you know, there's an analgesic benefit, which we can get into that we're really exploring right now. Our postdoc over there in London, he just put a paper out, um, which found some of the mechanisms to it. So most of them are buying into it. And then I can get into the um, what we are doing to maybe enhance performance, either from blocking muscle damage or, or maybe even looking at enhancing performance, doing it pre-treatment or pre-event. Pre, uh, I think it's fair to say it sounds like it has a lot of potential in a lot of different areas that if you dig oil in that particular area, could really reap a lot of positive dividends. For you, what, what's, what's the one that's really piqued your interest? What do you find interesting now? over the next three to five years, what are you going to be focusing in on from a research perspective or, or what do you feel you'd want to read up more on that you really think BFR can really do a lot of X, Y, and Z for this population? What's it that you find interesting? Yes, that, that's a really good question. So we, we have primarily focused on the orthopedic injury 
um, in the orthopedic sports medicine injury. So, you know, our, our clinical trials right now are into the 30s worldwide and, and primarily looking at everything from ACL um, reconstructions to, um, to cartilage procedures to ankle fractures, um, now total knees and total hips. And so, um, you know, I, I think it, it, I, could, I really feel like I could argue my case and feel like I could come out ahead with anybody right now with those kind of injuries to say, this is why doing these low level exercises that you're forced to do after those injuries by adding a tourniquet beats it every time. Um, and it, it's almost like a no brainer right now. Now we're just trying to really dial in what's the best pressure, when's the best time to start post-surgery or post-injury, et cetera. Now our shift is really moving into um, the people that might benefit the most from it. And, and it's the, the elderly sarcopenic. Sarcopenic means, you know, kind of the loss of muscle that you start to start to have with age and, and have with disuse population. So, you know, we have a peripheral arterial, arterial disease trial that's in Germany, a diabetes trial in Germany. Um, our, our giant uh, physical therapy rehab conference we just had this year, 20,000 of us combined sections. Um, one of my talks was with the cardiopulmonary section and it was how we can apply BFR for the heart failure patient. Um, and I'm doing a webinar next week with the American Physical Therapy Association's cardiopulmonary section. And we're looking at um, this application with people um, potentially while they're on ventilators or post-ventilation after COVID as can we do it to spare? You, you lose tons of muscle in those conditions. And, and also there's there's potentially even a, um, a an, an immune response that we see. When you exercise, everyone's like exercise is good for your immune system. You know, especially if you exercise really intensely, um, you have an immune response very, very kind of quickly afterwards. And, and the immune response is actually to come in and start to help with muscle damage um, and, and to start to repair any muscle damage that's happened. And, and this is kind of highlighted the Nobel Prize in physiology last year was given to some gentlemen who, who discovered how hypoxia can really control gene expression. Um, and, and, and in particular, a uh, one that's called HIF-1, so hypoxia inductible factor one. And so if you put a tourniquet on and you go into hypoxia and you do minimal or very low exercise, it looks like you might even still get that immune response, but you don't have muscle damage. So the immune response is there, but it's not spending its time working on trying to repair muscle. All of a sudden you have an increase in, in, in this, all these immunity factors and, and we're really kind of asking this question now, is that even something powerful for these people recovering from these, you know, periods of COVID and things like that? Yeah, in terms of clinical practice, and we'll be aware of the delay that it takes for scientific papers and research to transition to clinical practice. Have you seen any resistance in orthopedic wards or hospitals from consultants or even the physical therapy leads about introducing which some might see him as quite a different approach to re rehabilitation. You know, we, we, we certainly did early on. Um, you know, I always, always said, you know, it's been at least over a decade now when we were first really exploring this in, in the DOD, Department of Defense. You know, and you would mention like, hey, I want to put this tourniquet on this person post-surgery. 
and you know to to do this what we're talking about with Buffalo Restriction Day, and people looked at me like I was talking about barbecue and kittens. It just kind of blew their mind. Um, <laughs> but then you know what was really beneficial for us is putting a tourniquet on a patient was not novel to an orthopedic surgeon, and so typically when you would start talking to the orthopedic surgeon and they understand physiology, at least, you know, most of them to, to a basic extent and, and you would explain it, they would be like, man, that makes sense. And, and, and they're like, you know, I, I put tourniquets on for two hours and I do them in much higher pressures and the patient's sedated and laying there and I'm not worried about it. So, you know, you're talking about you're controlling the pressure and you know how much is going in and it's, it's about a six minute bout and the patient's moving. And so the orthopedic surgeons were actually like, go for it. And so my, my first, you know, biggest funded trials was $4.2 million for this. And that was primarily supported through the Major Extremity Trauma Research Consortium. So a bunch of orthopedic trauma surgeons throughout the United States at the largest centers all put in that they supported it and, and got a, a, a big grant for it. And then we just started seeing now the sports medicine doctors are saying, I, you know, I, I, this is why I think this works. And now we even have published papers in their journals from the kind of the top orthopedic doctors in our country saying this is how and why I do blood flow restriction after these surgeries. So that's helped a ton in that population. Definitely. Yeah, because it definitely seems that the, it, like it will have a huge role in helping with all of this um, ICU acquired weaknesses and that we'll see across, you know, not just one country, but the globe over the next few years from this um, pandemic. So it could be a really, really like interesting area for us to, to develop over here. But that's what I would be thinking is from my experience and David might elaborate as well, like working in these wards and working with these people, it can be difficult to introduce yeah. subtle new differences as opposed to something that might, they might seem as see as radical. But I, th- I mean, when you quantify it like that in terms of the tourniquet for the surgery being on for two hours, and then this being on for six minutes, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds a lot more applicable then, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I believe so. And, and, and that's kind of like to get it into our total knee trials and total hip trials. You know, it, we couldn't have started in those groups like, hey, you know what? Let's start this on the elderly patient with a total knee. But because we were able to say already like, hey, we've been doing this with service members and, and we've been doing this with pro athletes and college guys. And we have all these studies looking at that it became much more tolerable and acceptable when we started discussing it with our joint doctors, um, you know, that, Hey, this, you know, older people have the same physiology pretty much. And this looks like it, you know, they would benefit as well. And so now that it's in that sector, I think moving the acuity even into the inpatient wards, um, you know, we've already started working with some groups in the States where we're, we're, you know, kind of piloting and applying this in, in inpatient settings, uh, just because, you know, we know the quicker we do things after these, these events, kind of the, the better the outcomes. And, and there is a paper published that, that showed sparing of muscle. Um, it was done in Brazil. If you, if you put these tourniquets on individuals, you didn't even do exercise. You just, you just did kind of a rotating tourniquet protocol. Um, it actually blunted muscle loss in the ICU. So we've already got pilot data that we hope can get some larger robust trials. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Um, Johnny, just before we get into some kind of more of the questions we tend to ask a couple of different people that come onto this pod, I'm just curious. I, I see a lot of diversity of thought and lateral thinking, perhaps from yourself, and obviously 
the group of people thinking about, well, what can BFR do for different populations, be that diabetics, be that cardiopulmonary, outside the musculoskeletal, outside the ACL, outside the osteoarthritic knee. Where does that kind of thought process come when you go, well, why don't we consider it for this population? Why don't we consider it for this? Because it's definitely going to work. Just where does that kind of process come about and how does it form that you can say, this might be a target population we should look at. It will definitely work for them now. Yeah. You know, and, and you only know really what your wheelhouse is. And, and so I'm an orthopedic guy and, you know, also dealt with a lot of large trauma. So it was easy for me to always kind of translate things into those worlds. I understood what was going on. And I also had, you know, when you have cover, you know, ground cover from the, the surgeons and everyone else around you, like, yeah, listen to him. He understands what he's talking about. That helps. But then when all of a sudden I'm like, hey, you know, I want to talk about this with a Parkinson's patient. I, I am not an expert and, and, and I don't want to go in there and, and don't want to do harm or, or waste anyone's time. So what I my goal is I always try and reach out to people um, in those sectors and just say, hey, this is what we're doing. Do you think there's a play here? You know, this is how this whole cardiopulmonary thing happened with the APTA. Dr. Kahalen at Miami, he's one of our leaders in the country in this space, you know, I was able to, to meet him through a friend. And when I found out what he did, I was like, Hey, can we discuss this? And do you think there's a, there's a play here? And, and uh, you know, he's a great friend and, and we talk all the time and just we'll kind of spitball like, well, okay, what if we did it this way? What if we did this way? What about for, for the lungs? We haven't really explored this. And the same thing with, with Parkinson's, you know, we have a trial now, levodopa, which you take for Parkinson's, um, it's essential for their symptoms, but it destroys your vascular system. Um, and a lot of these patients die of cardiovascular disease. And so, you know, discussing this with, with, with someone who's very smart in that space. And I said, you know, we have compelling data that, that going into hypoxia like this actually makes the arteries more compliant and, and might help them. And we've already got really promising data from her trial that, that this could be something they do to, they can stay on their drug, but also helps their their vascular system. I, w- I would have never translated that, but I need someone to kind of tell me their problem. If they tell me their problem, I can I can always kind of say, well, I might have a solution here. Very cool. It's definitely a hugely exciting um, field. Where would people go to find out more about what you're doing yourself and what your associates are doing if they were looking to develop their understanding a bit more? Yeah, um, we have, well, we have a... We have a company, um, Owens Recovery Science, um, owensrecoveryscience.com, and, and we try and put out a lot of content. Uh, we have our own podcast, and if you like my 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 lame voice and, and you like this kind of <laughs> our stuff, we have, we have a very long podcast where we do deep dives. I think we just did a two-hour one last week where we just discussed. Um, We're not going that long, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we, but about clots. So we have, we have that there. We have blogs there. Typically we have courses all over the world. Um, obviously we're all on hold right now and hopefully we can start those up again. Um, we just, it seems like we just keep canceling more and more, but, but that's where we are. And then we're on social, pretty much all of our social handles are at, at Owens Recovery Science. Perfect. Lovely. I can vouch for it. I did it. Worth it. Even got a t-shirt. It was a nice t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and if and I know David, your your population that probably listens to this is, is way more into the the performance and athletic side, and that's how you and I know each other, and, and that's really what that's really where we our bread and butter was built is in that population, and and pretty much every professional team in every league in the United States 
is a client and we work with them regularly and we learn a lot from them and what they're doing um, from a performance side as well as from a rehab side. All right, Johnny, that's, we've done well. We've got through COVID, we've got through your bit of BFR. Just going to give you a couple little questions to kind of wrap it nicely together. You've, you've done a lot. You've impacted a lot of different people, educated a lot of different people. Like we said at the start, I've learned from you. You've helped me in my career. And there's, there's countless other people that can say the same thing. Let's roll forward 20 years from now. And if you, had to, if you can then look back onto what you've done, you know, personally, professionally, what, what would you like to, people to be able to say that, you know, Johnny Owens was really good at that? Or that's how I'd identify Johnny Owens. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. These are the kind of questions I'm terrible at, David. So I know it's not fun to answer, but I, I, it's good good exercise sometimes. You know, I hear this all the time. I grew up in West Texas, and David, you might know that area. Probably most people over in Europe won't. It's it's like the true Texas tumbleweeds. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's just like backwoods farms, um, and and so um, a lot of people have told me that I'm able to to take complicated concepts and make it relatable or translatable. And, and I, you know, I, I love now when I'm, you know, we have over 6,000 certified providers and hearing them kind of talk deep physiology now and get excited about the mammalian target of rapamycin complex one pathway, which is extremely kind of complicated. Sure, I'm trying to write that down there really quickly now. Did he one spell it time, right? One more time. <laughs> You know, but, but stuff, and, and I'm not the smartest guy, you know, around, but I, I can really work hard and, and try and hopefully make it translatable. So, you know, just like with a lot of these other programs that were successful in the military, I, I love seeing that this is proliferated out and, and that hopefully, you know, it's just made it where people are kind of excited about something like this. What's, what's the next goal, be it short term or long term? What's the next big, big target for you? Short term will be to find toilet paper. Um, <laughs> it's funny, guys. It might two hours might be okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have to wear multiple hats. So uh, I'm involved on the research side. I'm involved on the education side with this. And I'm involved on the business side. You know, we were ranked by Inc. Magazine in their Inc. 5000 list last year as the 136 fastest growing company in America. Um, and now, you know, it short term, you know, it's like, I got to make sure I, I can keep my staff and we pay, we, we pay them well. We pay for all their healthcare, which is extremely expensive over here. So if you're to say right now during the COVID podcast that we're doing, um, I'm really trying to make sure our business is staying viable for a long time so we can be on the other end of this and, and I don't lose my staff who I, I love and, and, and they're great. So that's my real short-term goal is, is that we're doing everything we can to be smart. Um, and long-term goal is, again, to, like I mentioned, there's other projects that I'm looking at that aren't blood flow restriction related. But really, with this blood flow restriction, I'm, I'm really excited about seeing the traction being picked up in these medical comorbidities um, besides the sports medicine space. So diabetics and you know potential cancer trials and stroke trials and things like that because those are the people that i think we can really affect um, if i get jj watt 0.1 millisecond faster on his 40 time that's great but if i can help grandma smith get out of her house um, because of something we did that that's even better love it 
Johnny, what does we fin we finish this podcast with always asking the same question? It's kind of coming to a nice circle. What does high performance mean to you? Yeah, so I, I think high performance touches every component of our life. So I th- you know, if to me high performance would be did I ever do everything I could to have myself prepared for today? Like I said, we're in a pandemic, we're in a crisis. I have to put on a a face for my family. Um, that makes them feel like I've got this. I have to put on a face for my staff that makes them feel like I've got this. So for me, high performance would be, did I touch every aspect that can affect that? And, and that's, did I sleep well? Did I eat well? Did I do something to move? Um, be a, a Move a lot, move a little, but at least it's something to move. And have I done something for my headspace to make sure that I'm in, I'm in the right you know, environment to handle whatever's thrown at me today. Um, and so I think you can take that from trying to teach that to my children to teach that to a very high end athlete, that these are the things you got to look at. And, and if you dip in any of those, it affects the entire cycle. So if you didn't sleep well last night, we're going to have a really hard time today going through some vigorous exercise. Or if you're worried about your girlfriend or you've got this problem, then everything else is, is going to suffer. So I think you have to just kind of realize there's a lot of buckets and you can't keep them all high performing, um, but you got to try and keep them up as much as you can because each one, like the car, you run out of gas, everything else starts to fall apart. Great answer. Well, that, that's, that's up there, Johnny. That's, you know, we've recorded a couple. I think you've been practicing for that question. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. That's good. Yeah, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> that was good. It came from the heart, Johnny. You you are um, you're a humble teacher. You know you 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 give out a lot. You know, so hope it comes back to you. Um, thanks very much for giving us the time today. I'm speaking from Kiran and myself, I really enjoyed it. You've helped me. You helped me at a time there not too long ago in the hotel, Emma. In particular, yeah. I won't forget that. Uh, um, so we're gonna we're not we're gonna cut off there. <laughs> thanks very much, Johnny. Be yeah. well. Stay safe. That's one of my favorite things is being able to, to meet guys like you and, and David. It's been awesome calling you a friend now. So um, if anything, you know, making this world smaller by us all getting to, to hang out. It's been great.